Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. This is uh, day 21 of the partial government shutdown. This uh, shutdown began days before Christmas over a standoff between President Donald Trump and congressional Democrats over funding for the president's long-promised border wall. Here to help us understand the issue is David Beer. He is an immigration policy analyst for the Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. David Beer, thank you for being with us. As an immigration policy analyst, could we just go through some of the issues that the president has cited as the need for this border wall? Let's begin with drug smuggling. What are the facts? Well, the fact is that uh, about 90% of all of the hard drugs, you're talking about cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, and fentanyl are trafficked through ports of entry. So they're carried in luggage, they're sent through the mail, they're brought on airplanes, they are not uh, smuggled between ports of entry where uh, a border wall would go. Um, really the only drug that is primarily smuggled between ports of entry is marijuana. And marijuana smuggling has declined about 80% since the legalization of marijuana in several states starting in 2014. So um, the demand is now being done legally, uh, domestically in the United States rather than from Mexico. And so the need for a border wall between ports of entry to stop drug smuggling just doesn't add up. You're going to spend billions upon billions of dollars for this project when most of the drugs and most of the hard drugs are coming through the ports of entry where they are understaffed and um, you know need more support than they have right now. David, what do you think that President Trump actually wants? I think he wants a border wall. No, I mean in terms of immigration policy. Uh, you know, in terms of legal immigration, I think he's been quite clear that he wants a lot less of it, um, whether you're talking about refugees, asylum seekers, uh, people reuniting with their family members. Uh, really, the only people he says that he wants are the so-called merit-based immigrants, but every plan that he supports uh, to move our system in that direction doesn't actually increase uh, merit-based immigration hardly at all yeah. while cutting legal immigration dramatically. Do you think that that is the correct policy for the U.S. economy and for, oh. and for security? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, on the security side, uh, the constraints on legal immigration actually drive illegal immigration. If we were admitting people at ports of entry, if we were issuing visas in their home countries, they wouldn't be showing up in caravans. They wouldn't be crossing the border illegally. We would be able to do background checks. We'd be able to do medical checks. People would be coming safely and legally um, through a process where we can vet them. Uh, it would be a far better situation than the one that we have now. 
from an economic perspective, we're seeing, you know, the president's bragging every day about how great the economy is, how we're growing jobs, how unemployment's at record lows. And if you look at, uh, you know, our visa, you know, one of the visa programs that is available for uh, non for seasonal guest workers in non-agricultural industries, we have a cap on that. And uh, basically, in one day, that cap was filled, and there were three times more um, jobs demanded than slots available for that. So the demand is there. These are people, these are companies willing to do recruitment of U.S. workers, spend uh, thousands of dollars uh, to go through the legal immigration process. Uh, But because of these outdated caps, um, you know, they're not able to fill those positions uh, through the legal immigration system. David, if you were asked to testify before Congress and asked whether there is a security crisis on the southern border of the United States, how would you respond? I would say there's by no measure a security crisis at our southern border. Uh, if you look at in fiscal year 2018, the number of apprehensions for each Border Patrol agent, which is the best measure of illegal immigration that you could have, each border agent was apprehending just one person every two weeks. So for the vast majority of the time, Border Patrol agents are not bringing people into their custody, which is a sign that we do have the situation under control. Maybe we need to uh, shift resources around. The second fact that you need to consider is that half of the people that they are bringing into their custody are simply turning themselves in. They're asylum seekers. They actually are seeking agents out to say, please bring me into your custody. I want to get part of the legal system. I want to go through the process. And so the idea that we're just seeing this huge influx of people trying to sneak into our country to commit crimes in this, in this country is just absolutely untrue. If you look at Border Patrol figures on the number of criminals that they actually apprehend, crossing the border illegally, you just have less than a thousand of the more than 400,000 people that they uh, apprehended in, in 2018 had violent criminal convictions or histories. Yeah. Now, that's a thousand too many, but uh, we're apprehending them. And if we could focus on them and not on the people who are just trying to reunite with their families or seek economic opportunity or seek safety from Uh, you know, violent threats in their home countries, that would be a better situation for everyone from a security perspective. So, uh, David, you work for the Cato Institute, which was founded by uh, Charles Koch and funded by the Koch brothers. Uh, It has sort of uh, sort of known as speaking with, uh, among others, Republican uh, representatives. And I'm wondering how receptive they are to what you're saying. Well, I think there's a growing understanding that the economy is growing in such a way that you absolutely need an outlet um, for companies to hire people legally. Um, I, you know, if you look at the partisanship that dominates this town, it's going to be difficult to get the reforms that are needed simply because we have a partisan impasse about this border wall, and it's really um, holding up everything else in terms of immigration reform. So. Um, I do think a substantial portion of the Republican Party still is in the camp of we need to have legal immigration. We need to fulfill uh, this demand in a legal way, deal with the people who are here illegally for many years in a, in a reasonable manner. 
Um, but uh, I do also think and recognize that there's a significant part of the Republican Party that's not in that camp, and they just want fewer legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. They just want fewer people from foreign countries uh, in our country. All right, we've got to leave it there, but thank you very much for being with us. David Beer, immigration policy analyst for Cato Institute based in Washington, D.C., on day 21 of the partial federal government shutdown over funding for a border wall, the request by President Donald Trump. It is risk on again in credit markets, flows in, yields down, borrowers coming back to the market. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios is Tom Atterbury, Chief Investment Officer and Founding Partner of FPA. He manages uh, more than $6 billion for the firm, uh, which is based in Los Angeles. Tom, thank you so much for being here. Are you feeling risk on right now? Are you feeling like it's time to go out there and dive back into the credit markets? Uh, the answer would be would be no. I mean, you, when you think about, just as an example, look at, at investment-grade corporates, where you've got roughly half of them now are triple B. And if you look at the sort of EBITDA number, you look at its debt, and look at that ratio, you realize it's as high as it was in 2008, and it's as high as it was in 2000. Both of those, you know, the heights of, of a recession. So you think about that and go, do I think the economy's gonna go into a recession or just slow down in some fashion over the next several years? Not an unreasonable expectations. You're already highly levered. You also have to think about the fact that they're gonna need to refinance some of that debt. What if they need to refinance it at a higher level? May not be able to do it as well in a, in a lower cash flow environment. So we don't see value. Now, if I compare December, it was extremely overvalued. Now it's just overvalued. Talk, if you can, about the idea that debt growing faster than GDP. And we could even connect that to what happens in a household. Excuse me. For example, if you are taking on debts in a household at a greater pace than your income is accelerating, everybody knows that's not a winning recipe. Why does that exist when it comes to investments? It's to our view in, in within the non-sovereign state, the non-sovereign world, the non-government world, it's not a sustainable. And we've seen periods in the past where this occurred. And the end result was, you, you mentioned the household, and you think back to the 06 through 08 period, a household had, had to go through a rather cathartic reevaluation of their balance sheet, write debt off, get into all sorts of total, you know, to get themselves cleaned up again. You think back to 2000 period of time, corporate America did. I mean, when you think about the corporate America problems that went on there, that's Enron and WorldCom and, and uh, Tyco. So it is not a sustainable from a, from a corporate standpoint. You can say the same thing about government. It's just much harder to figure out how long well, does they this got la- taxing yeah, power, how right? Long I mean, does they this last always, and once, yeah. yeah, once it stops. But, it, but when does it stop for the corporate borrower? It will stop for the corporate borrower when you think about them today. They're able to support the debt today because their interest cost is low. Their leverage is high. But looking forward, if you start to raise rates for them to refinance, 
that benefit goes away, they still got too much debt. There's a, a, a chart that we use, we've used with clients that shows implied um, you know, ratings. So you just take like S&P or Moody's and they say half of it is triple B. Right. Well, if you just base that analysis off of the leverage component, not the interest coverage component, just the leverage component, instead of half of them being triple B, only about 35% are triple B. Well, that's nice. The problem is the 15% become double B and single right, right. B. They go, to, they go to the right, which is a way of telling you that, look, this is not sustainable. If you rate, you know, they, they, they're unable to get that debt down, you're going to have to do some, some sort of restructurings. So there's a question of long-term versus short-term, because in the long-term, everything that you're saying makes sense. In the short-term, people don't see necessarily a recession. So what are you buying now? How do you determine, uh, you know, how to balance the short-term and long-term? So... We look at the world for a corporate bond investment, whether it's a high yield or a, a bank loan or, or investment grade, you think in terms of three to five years. And so we look at that and go, this doesn't look attractive from a valuation standpoint. Let's not commit our capital there. Conversely, if I think of high quality bonds, things that are a single A rated and higher, we really comfortable you're going to get paid back, you realize that over the last couple of years as the Fed sort of systematically raised the Fed funds rate from 25 basis points to the two and a half. I took a two-year treasury that was 25 basis points and at its peak was what, 280, it's 250-ish now. And I took a three-year treasury and almost got it to 3%. You look at those high quality return rates and you go, well, wait a minute, that's higher than inflation. I don't have to worry about the credit problems. I can go buy that high quality security that's a three-year, a four-year, or maybe a two-year, and get a reasonable return in this environment. So what's, how, how much has the balance shifted in your portfolio, uh, treasuries to credit? So if we had this conversation in 2015 and 16, I was at roughly 23% in things that were triple B and below. It's at seven today. We had that conversation then, I would have said, I have zero in treasuries then. Those three and five year treasuries make up about 5% of the portfolio, but I've got other high quality investments that are in that same three, four year maturity range because they made sense for us from sort of the risk return trade-off you were looking at. Investors spend a lot of time comparing their results to those of other investors. Do you believe that benchmarking leads to poor decisions and should people benchmark against something such as inflation rather what they should could or would have invested in in hindsight? Our view is, is much more of what, what are you trying to accomplish with the capital you've deployed? And in our particular strategy is very um, capital preservation oriented. So if I think about it in those terms, I go, okay, what do I need? To, what should I be doing in capital preservation? Well, the first thing, I should have an absolute positive return. In our strategy, it's a 12-month horizon for that. But I also need to at least get inflation to protect its buying power and should try to get something that maybe 100 basis points over inflation. The interesting thing is when you start to look at the investment world that way, I'm indifferent to what the benchmark is. I, I, I just look at what could I own that helps me accomplish those two objectives and just strictly look for securities that might do that. It, one, narrows the number of securities to look at down a lot. And you realize many things in the bond market just to us don't make sense because they don't help us accomplish our objective. I think investors should go much more away from benchmarks and comparing myself to somebody else and going, what is my objective of this capital? What am I trying to accomplish? Thank you. 
for mm. helping us understand this and giving us a different perspective. I appreciate you having me on this morning. Well, we didn't even mention your former radio career. No. <laughs> Did it help prepare you for investing? You know, interestingly, it helped me with presentation skills and trying to explain things to large audiences and small audiences, and that's probably it. And it was a heck of a lot of fun when I did it. Thanks very much. It's been fun having you on. Tom Atterbury is the Chief Investment Officer and founding partner of uh, FPA. And of course, uh, he helps to manage uh, over $6 billion based in Los Angeles. And they recently launched the FPA Flexible Income Fund, First Pacific. The government shutdown is entering its 21st day without a resolution in sight. The question becomes, at what point does this gridlock imperil the U.S.'s AAA rating? Joining us now, James McCormack, Global Head of Sovereign Debt at Fitch Ratings. Joining us from London, James, thank you so much for being with us. Fitch Ratings has sounded a bit of an alarm, saying that if this government shutdown does drag on much longer, it will consider a downgrade to the top rating that the U.S. currently enjoys. Please explain. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. I, I, I guess there's a couple of things that really uh, come into focus, really, the longer this goes on. One is uh, consistent with a note we put out last week. We said, you know, if this foreshadows a more, say, pronounced destabilization of policymaking uh, that would include the standoff over the debt limit, which is really much more important than, than the shutdown, then I think we'd have to be quite concerned about that. And and the second sort of parallel track we're, we're thinking about is that the policymaking framework matters so much in the U.S. because there are some pretty big fiscal policy challenges ahead in addition to the debt limits. So the fiscal deterioration that's underway uh, with deficits in the order of 55 to 6% and the debt level where it is without uh, at, a, at around 100% the way we measure it, uh, without a resolution in sight, kind of sets the fiscal trajectory of the U.S. on a slightly different path than what we would see in other AAAs. So we do have to think about it in those contexts. Well, uh, Chairman uh, Powell, uh, Jerome Powell of the Federal Reserve, said at the uh, Economic Club meeting that he's concerned about the level of the U.S. debt and that it is something that they have really no power over. Uh, as a result, what do you think will, will it take to get lawmakers to focus on it? Well, that's a very good question because lawmakers have not been focused on it for some time. This is a debt burden that has been creeping higher. Uh, Congress has not yet taken on the issues that need to be resolved. And the primary issue why the deficit continues to grow, in addition to the tax, cut, the tax cuts that we've just seen, is really on the mandatory spending side. And that is going to be a very difficult issue for uh, for politicians to, to embrace. But at some point uh, down the line, that does need to be addressed. If you look at Congressional Budget Office projections over the next 10 years, yeah. uh, it's very clear that there are two items, that, well, two items on the spending side where uh, things need to be uh, things need to be addressed. Yeah. One is on the, the mandatory spending, and and the other is really interest burden. Uh, so both of those things are rising very quickly. The, the interest burden can't do much about that unless the debt comes down, but mandatory spending something can be done about that. But it's very very difficult politically to get 
definite agreement on that. So, James, is there sort of a deadline for which the U.S. has to come for uh, come to a resolution for you to stop taking a look at the AAA rating? In other words, uh, how long does this have to go on before you really do consider stripping the U.S. of the top rating? Yeah, it's not so much about the shutdown. It's really more about the debt ceiling. And as you may uh, you may know, the debt ceiling comes back into force at the beginning of March, and then the Treasury begins to use what it calls extraordinary measures at that point. So there's probably a couple of months uh, before that really begins to bite. When we last put uh, took any rating action on the U.S., it was to put it on rating watch negative, and that was back in 2013. When the when the period during which those extraordinary measures operate was coming to an end. Um, and there was no resolution in sight. We were within 48 hours of the so-called X date. Um, and I think it, we would need to be in a position similar to that before we well, thought about uh, a rating action. So one, sometime down the road. One thing that I don't understand, though, if these situations keep arising and it does not appear that gridlock is going to ease anytime soon in Washington, why not downgrade the U.S. now? Yeah, I mean, we've been kind of down this road before, but not quite as pronounced. And that's why we're that's why we're talking about it now, because we want to make sure that, uh, you know, market participants and other observers understand our position. If we were to take a rating action on the U.S., we want that to be as well flagged as possible. Um, And so we are speaking about it now because it's an issue that we think the markets uh, should be made aware of. But we're not in a position to suggest that this is definitively going to happen. So there's still plenty of time for uh, Congress and and, uh, the White House to act to resolve both the the shutdown and then subsequently to to address the debt limit. Um, And if that happens, as it has in the past, uh, then the AAA rating is is probably sound. James, if you believe that a recession uh, is coming in 2019, would that change any of your ratings? I don't think so. I mean, the rating is supposed to be resilient through an economic cycle. We don't see a recession, in fact, in in 2019. We don't see a recession in in, in 2020 either. We certainly see slowing growth, um, particularly as the fiscal stimulus begins to fade in 2019, and we will have weaker growth towards the end of the year. And in 2020, we see growth only in the in, in around two percent. And this year, we see it at sort of 2.6 percent. So definitely a slowing of growth, but but not a recession. And I don't think we would be wanting to suggest that uh, the U.S. rating was under under any kind of threat from a from a normal economic cycle, including one that was uh, inclusive of a recession. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. But thanks very much for being with us. James McCormack is a global head of global sovereigns and supranational at Fitch Rating, speaking about the U.S. sovereign debt rating at a time when there's a bit of buying in the Treasury market right now. Anheuser-Busch InBev considering an initial public offering of its Asian operations. Here to tell us more is Francois Sonneville. He is the senior beverage analyst at Rabobank. Francois, thank you very much for being with us. Why is Anheuser-Busch InBev looking to split off this Asian business? Uh, Good afternoon, and uh, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I think that a good question would be, like, is the company in trouble? And that depends on, like, from whose perspective you are looking at this. 
I think if you look from the shareholders' perspective, they've had a very rough time. Uh, since October uh, 2016 till now, the share price has roughly halved. And recently, also, the dividend has been cut. So some of the large shareholders have had a tough time and probably are not that happy with the way things are going. I think if you're a bondholder, however, you're like quite okay. I think the cash flow pattern of the company is good. And also, if you look at the operations, I would say that the company is not a disaster, but more like a disappointment in recent years, in recent months. I've been really struggling with a series of Anheuser-Busch and Bev moves this week. They sold $15.5 billion of debt, pushing out the maturities a bit, but they uh, they tendered for less than they borrowed. So they're increasing their overall debt load with this. They're paying higher rates than they did last year when they borrowed. Uh, and at, now they're trying to uh, perhaps do an IPO, maybe to use some of that cash to pay down their debt. Can you understand what the overarching strategy here of the company is? I think probably it's like a little bit preparing for for unexpected things. Um, I think the company is, is already like uh, quite conservatively financed, but um, undoubtedly the, the debt levels are quite at a high level. And I think the company has seen like uh, headwinds in the United States where beer sales are slowing and they're losing market share to craft beer and, uh, and to, to imports. I think also like in some of the emerging markets, they've had like uh, currency impacts. So I think that they're probably looking at like uh, how to make their financing like more bulletproof uh, in case like there is more headwind to come. Do you think that it's going to be a popular initial public offering if it takes place? Will investors want a piece of it? I think if you look at like the operations of uh, of ABN Bev across the world, I think that definitely like uh, Asia Pacific has been like an area where they've been very strong. Uh, if we look at those operations, about uh, three quarters of it uh, would be in China. And uh, although China was like a decade ago a market where there was a lot of volume, but very little value or profit to be achieved, that has really changed. And uh, ABN Bev has been like the driving force in premiumization in the Chinese market. And one of the interesting things that we found was that if you look, for example, at the Budweiser sales, uh, you see that uh, in 2017, China overtook the U.S. as the largest market for Budweiser volume. So the company has been doing really well there. I think one question would be, like, can they continue to do so? And we think that for the near term, they can. So it probably will be quite popular. Pim, that's so ironic, isn't it, that Budweiser, which has been this sort of quintessential American beer, is now uh, having greater success in China at a time when U.S. and China are locked in a lot of uh, tight negotiations. Francois, I'd love to get your opinion on the credit rating of Anheuser-Busch and Bev, because uh, they were downgraded at the end of last year because of their high debt load and their uh, lack of progress in addressing it. Do you think that immunizing their balance sheet the way that they have is an indication that they won't care? if they're downgraded to junk? I find that very difficult. Uh, we got like other experts within Rabobank who, who are better positioned to talk about that. So I like to pass on that question, if I may. It's not really my, my expertise. As long totally as, uh, fine. I'm wondering, going forward, where will the big growth driver be for the company? I think what was really interesting is to look at Africa. And I think that um, in recent months, it has been a little bit like uh, under... Um, and amplified by, by the markets. Um, I think if we look at Africa, uh, per capita consumption is still incredibly low. We see that about three quarters of consumption of beer in Africa is like home brewed. And we also see that the population grows with 3% per year. Uh, ABN, obviously, is like very strong in the continent. 
of the SAB Miller acquisition. So I think they'll, they'll benefit there from like volume growth, but also from like people who can afford like a little bit better beer, spending a bit more. So Africa, I think, will be really interesting for like uh, the mid to longer term for the company. And just quickly, give you about 30 seconds. The distribution network that Anheuser-Busch InBev have is global and pretty good. Is there an opportunity for them to sell other products in addition to beer? Um, I definitely think so. Uh, I mean, I see more like a strong distribution platform with brands rather than the other way around. And there has been a lot of speculation whether ABI should get together with like a, a soft drink company. And if that's the case, you obviously want a strong share price. And today's move could make a lot of sense. Francois Sonneville, thank you so much for being with us. Francois Sonneville is Senior Beverage Analyst at Rabobank International, coming to us uh, from London. Anheuser-Busch is uh, definitely trying to fend off some of the headwinds that it faced over the past 12 months. It has had a pretty rough time of it. Uh, Today, though, we are seeing a little pop in their shares, up about 3.3% on the news that they are planning to spin off their Asian operations and initial public offering. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.